Well, uh, we're in a series entitled uh, The Cross of Christ. It started uh, back in March. It's, it's kind of a long series, and I realize that eight weeks is kind of long. But it, it's long because it's really important. I mean, to, to talk about the cross of Christ is you know, the central theme, really, of the Christian faith. Everything rises or falls on the fact of the cross. And what I've shared with you uh, from the very beginning of this series is simply this, that for the follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross. You cannot separate the cross from Christianity. If you follow Jesus, everything is built around the cross. Even if you don't follow Jesus, the cross is everything. You cannot separate our faith, the Christian faith. You cannot take the cross out of it. Now, I began the series talking about the centrality of the cross, and then I, I talked about the reason for the cross, to bring us to God or to declare us right in the eyes of God. I talked about the heart of the cross, God's love for us, the, the, the achievement of the cross, that we were reconciled. Those four, first four messages were kind of about truth, about what we might call doctrine. It was about the reality of the cross. And starting in last weekend in, on Easter here in April, we're going to talk about how the cross becomes real to us. Last week on uh, Easter Sunday, we talked about the message of the cross, that Jesus is Lord. So you need to trust him with your life. And today, uh, we're going to come into Acts chapter 2 and talk to you about the preaching of the cross. Now, you may think that using the word preaching, that really that what I'm saying pertains to me, that might tend to tune you out, but really don't, don't do that because to speak of the preaching of the cross is just to speak of the reality of sharing the cross or proclaiming the passage that we're going to be in. It is being preached. The cross is what Peter preaches, and so that's where we're looking at it. But preaching is just another way of talking about sharing or proclaiming, or somehow telling people uh, about the cross. And so as we come to the passage, and I'll explain it in a minute, but this is what I, I want you to see from the passage today. For every church and every follower of Jesus, the proclaiming of the message of the cross is an essential part of our faith and our commitment to Jesus. In other words, we tell people about Jesus. If you're truly as a church going to be the church that we're called to be, not the way some churches are developing today or some churches are changing or what they're morphing into today. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, not in name only or just that you say you're a Christian because you're not an atheist or something else, but to truly be a follower of Jesus, then to proclaim or share the message that Jesus is Lord, it is an essential part of our faith. It is an essential part of our commitment. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to begin this message uh, talking about where it all began. Where it all began. To speak about where it all began, I'm talking about where the church really began, where, where the movement of the church really took off. I know it began with Jesus, but I mean where from the tracing historically of when the church really took root. And you come to the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before Jesus leaves, one of the critical, critical sayings of Christ, one of those things that as he leaves just lays so much of the blueprint of what the church is to be and what Christianity is to be, he told his, his 11 remaining apostles, he said, guys, the, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And when that happens, you will be my witnesses. You'll start in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to the area of Judea and Samaria. And then I expect you to go to the rest of the world. And that's what the book of Acts really does. It shows that to happen. Jesus leaves. And for about 10 days, that group of men begin to gather the, the other followers of Jesus. You know, a, a core of them that are in that area. There's some in Galilee, but there in Jerusalem, there's about 120 people. And they begin to meet. They replace Judas, so they back to 12. And that happens. And then we come to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, 
It's where we're going to see that sharing of the gospel takes place. And I want you to understand, as we talk about what it means to preach, to proclaim, to share the cross, we always do it within the context of the people. People live in a context, their life, they live in a culture, they live with, with their baggage and their background and their current situation and their family. There's, there was always the context of that. And in Acts chapter 2, the context is that the people of Israel uh, are, are there and, and, and it's the time of Pentecost. And Pentecost was one of the key celebrations of the Jewish nation because we're still dealing with the Jewish people. They, they had three major celebrations. Passover, 50 days later was Pentecost, and then later in the fall was what they were called the Feast of Tabernacles. Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. It was a harvest celebration. Now, every person, every Jewish man, and therefore their family, and that's how they kind of looked at things in their social life, was to celebrate those three festivals. And if you lived in Jerusalem, it was easy. In Judea, easy. Even in Galilee, you would probably do it, if not every year, just about every year. But if you lived outside of the area of Palestine, it'd be very difficult to do. Travel was hard. Um, it would take a lot of money. And so it was hoped that at least once in your lifetime, if you were a Jewish man, you could take your family to Jerusalem. And if you went to celebrate the Passover, since you traveled that far, you would go ahead and spend the next few weeks there and you would celebrate Pentecost together as well. And it would be this huge time of celebrating. Now, it, it was the day of Pentecost. And those early group of believers were in a room together. Now, we don't know exactly where the room was. It could have been the upper room that they had used before. It could have been right there in the temple precincts. There was a lot of places to meet. And even though and we may think, well, how could the Christian movement meet around the temple with all the Jewish leaders? It was still, these were Jewish men, Jewish people. They could have been there. And it was that time. And we're told in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit then comes upon them. It had been 10 days since Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit comes, and, 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 and the place starts shaking, and they hear the noise, and they see what looks like tongues of fire, and it just, it, it's just a great experience. And they spill out into the streets, and they end up at the temple at what is called the Porch of Solomon. That's where they gather, and that's where they are. And as this occurs, the people who were followers of Jesus... With thousands of people around them who have come from all over the world. They have come from Africa. They have come from Europe. They have come from Asia. Three continents. I mean, they, they represent Rome. They represent parts of Greece. Uh, they represent Egypt. Uh, in Asia Minor, you know, the, the area of Persia. They're all there from all over. They begin to speak in languages that the Jewish believers didn't know, but that the other Jews could understand. Now, all the Jews spoke Hebrew, and, and they understood Greek. But if you're from outside of Palestine, your major language was the area language there you came from, and they began to hear the gospel in their language. It was a miracle. It was unbelievable, and they couldn't believe it. And as this was going on, there's this ruckus. There's this whole noise. There's these things going on. Some think that the real issue, issue is that they had been drinking too much, and they were it's early at 9 o'clock in the morning. I don't know about any of your family. If you have anybody that drinks that early... There's a couple in my family from the past that do, but you know, that's what they were thinking. Now, Peter's going to get up to speak. Now, remember, I told you, you always think about the context of the people. Here's what you have to understand about the Jews, especially the Jewish men, and you know, by extension, their family, but that's kind of how you look at it. They all understood 
the scriptures, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they call their scriptures, they all understood them. They knew them. They especially knew the scriptures that dealt with the Messiah. They longed for, they looked to the coming of the Messiah. They knew those scriptures that spoke about a Messiah. And here's the other thing you got to remember. They all knew something about this guy called Jesus. Because Jerusalem would still be buzzing with the fact that they had hoped this guy, Jesus, Jesus, would have been the Messiah. But yet Jesus was put to death by a combination of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And here's what they also knew. That the tomb that Jesus was put in was empty. I mean, the tomb was empty. And they knew that. Now, the Jewish leaders had said the disciples had come to steal the body. And that was the story. Um, But as we will see in a little bit in a few minutes, that's probably a hard story for them to buy. And so there's this excitement, there's this curiosity. There are these people that follow Jesus, and now they're out in the streets preaching, and they're talking about this Jesus guy, and there's just all this kind of chaos that's going on. And then Peter begins to address them in the culture in which they live. And as he does so, he begins with the book of Joel, the prophecy of Joel, talking about there is going to come the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord comes, he will pour out his spirit. And then he will talk about, and what we'll see in a few minutes, verse 22 through 24, then he will talk about David, and he'll reference the psalm, Psalm 16 in particular, and how David had looked forward to the Christ, and he wasn't the Christ, David wasn't, because the Christ would be resurrected. And then he's going to get to verse 36, where he gives us an open invitation. People are going to respond, wondering how we're saved, and he's going to tell them. And before it's over, in the context of that day, 3,000 people are going to be saved. 3,000 thousand people. And the church movement begins at that moment. But here's the thing to realize as you come to the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, this is true. Whether it's Peter or whether it's Paul, whether they're preaching to Jews or Gentiles, wherever they may be, understand this. If you want to share Jesus, you must engage people in the context. It is so important. We've got to understand that today. If you really want to share Jesus with people, if you want people to come to Christ, and we should, you've got to engage them in the context. In the context where people live, I mean, that's critical. You've got to take it to them. And you've got to understand something about their culture. Now, please realize, I'm not saying ever that you embrace their culture. We live now in what we call a post-Christian culture. In other words, the culture of America is not Christian. Don't kid yourself. It's not. It is very much the opposite of being Christian. In some respects, it is anti-Christian. People grow up today. People live today in a world which many of them don't know anything about Jesus. They probably don't even know who he is. Some of them have never gone to church. I encounter people all the time who have never been to a church for any reasons, not for a funeral, not for a wedding, for anything. I grew up in a culture where everybody was at least affiliated with the church. They may not have attended much, but they were affiliated with it. If you were to ask them, you know, what is your religious beliefs? They would say, well, I'm Christian. Or, and, and I had a lot of people where I lived were Jewish in my school. But there's a connection. And now, and now there's a people who have no connection whatsoever. And I'm not saying we should ever embrace. To embrace is to hug, to grab a hold of, to accept in an intimate way. We should never embrace the culture. But we have to engage the culture. And sometimes in engaging that culture, we're going to be uncomfortable. We're going to make, meet people that make us uncomfortable. We're going to be in situations that are uncomfortable. And while we do not embrace that, we certainly engage that. Because we have to meet people in the context of where they live. And they don't live where we live. Lost people do not live where we live. With that in mind, we have to come then to the content of the message. And here then is the content of the message that Peter 
preached. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Here's the thing. He's talking to men of Israel. This is not mean. He's excluding the women because there were a lot of women there. This is just the way they reference things. To speak of Israel does not exclude Gentiles today. He wasn't talking to Gentiles unless they were God-fearers and they had kind of converted to Judaism. He was talking to people from Israel. He was talking to the Jews. This is the setting. He's outside the temple. He talks about Jesus the Nazarene. He references him from an historical context. There was a lot of people named Jesus. Jesus was a very common name. It's really the equivalent of our name Joshua. We're going to have a lot of people named Joshua here today. We've got a guy named Joshua on our staff. It was a common name. This was a particular individual, Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man attested or clearly shown by God. And this is the interesting thing. He is saying, Jesus, you've heard of him. The whole place of Israel, the whole place of Palestine, Jerusalem was a buzz about this guy from Palestine, this guy from Nazareth, I mean, named Jesus. God did some things through him. God was in the middle of what he did. God worked through miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, to the Jew, this was important because Jewish people believed that the Messiah would have signs, that the Messiah would demonstrate somehow through some type of sign, some indication that they were from God. The Jews were always asking Jesus, what authority do you do things? Or what are the signs? How do you attest to yourself that you're doing these things? And everything Jesus did, Peter said, was a sign of wonder from God. And don't make a big distinction between miracles, wonders, and signs. They basically mean the same thing for our purposes. It's a comprehensive way of saying everything Jesus did pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah. Remember when, when I began this series, in fact, when I start off with that phrase that for the follower of Jesus, everything comes back to the cross. And, and I would say something like this, everything Jesus did was in preparation for the cross. Everything Jesus did pointed to the cross. In other words, Peter's saying everything Jesus did pointed to something about him, and he did it by the power of the God. And he did it, he said, right in the middle of all of you, and you know he did it. So, you Jews, you listen, you wanted a Messiah. You wanted a Messiah that would give you signs and wonders that clearly he was from God. That's exactly what Jesus did. He clearly demonstrated to you when he healed someone, when he did something only God could do, when he took a man that was blind in all his life, he was born blind and he could see something only God could do, when he took a man who was dead and raised him back to life, something only God could do. He shows you clearly who he was. And in verse 23, Peter says this, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. So this man, this man Jesus, he was delivered over. The second message that I preached in this series from Romans 4.25, talking about the reason for the cross. Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over on account of our transgressions. He was given over. Now, what he was given over to was the cross. I'll come back to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. But he says this, you nailed him to a cross, and you used godless mans to put him to death. The term godless man would be the Romans. But here's saying to the people of Israel, you, you put Jesus to death on the cross. Now this, I understand, people read this today and think, you know, the Christians are anti-Semitic, they're blaming the Jews. No. Peter is Jewish, talking to Jews. 
Paul, later on, when he talks to Gentiles, reminds Gentiles that the reason Jesus died was for our sins. We always recognize we're responsible for what happened, and Jesus died for all of us. Peter is speaking about something that had happened within a couple of months. It's a historical, accurate fact, and he's telling these people in their context, remember, you put him to death. Now, they would say, hey, wait a minute. I, wouldn't, I didn't do that. And some of those folks may remember when Jesus came in to the triumphal entry a few days before the cross. They may have said, I was out there singing hallelujah. I mean, I was with the Lord. I mean, you know, they, I had a t-shirt that said, Team Jesus. You know, I was with Jesus on this one, you know. And my wife had one that says, I'm with him. I mean, that's how it looked. Peter was saying, we, God's people, had a Messiah. We crucified him. Not only that, we used the godless pagan Gentile Romans to do it. But, he said, all of this was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And sometimes we really struggle with it. Here's this unbelievable paradox of the freedom that people had that they used to kill Jesus, and yet it was still a part of God's plan, his foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge used is rarely used in the New Testament. It means to know beforehand. It's really the word prognosis, to know out beforehand. And God knows. I mean, listen, you believe that God is a knowing God, you believe that God knows everything. And if I, by the way, if God knows everything that's going to happen, then it's pretty much determined that it's going to happen, right? <laughs> you can't say, well, God knows everything that's going to happen, but it may not. I mean, he knows. And, and sometimes we, we try to skirt the issue to say, well, just because God knew it didn't mean that God did it. And yet Peter said it was his predetermined plan. Now, the word plan means step-by-step actions that occur. If you have a plan, you go, you know, you're just, here's the first step, second step, third. That's what it means. He predetermined it. He decided. He foreordained. I don't know how to get around that. It's just what it means from the very beginning. In fact, Jesus knew that. From the time that Jesus came, what did he keep saying as in his ministry? I'm going to the cross. He didn't use the word cross necessarily. He said, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'll be raised back up. This is why I came. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. On the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his betrayal, what did he say? Father, your will be done because I know what your will is. Your will is the cross. It should not cause you to struggle with this. Both can be true. God can be absolutely sovereign in control of all things, and we can still have freedom. Both of those things are true. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to understand everything, and I get it. And even I, you know, you know I'm like 98.5% got this down. There's that 1.5%. It's like, okay, I'm trying to figure out how this works, but that's okay. Remember last week I told you, just because you don't understand physics doesn't mean it's not true. It's all true. Just because you don't understand how an airplane flies, I still get on that airplane. I don't need to know how it flies. I still get on it. I know it flies. I trust it. I semi-trust everybody involved with it. Mostly I'm just taking my life in the Lord's hands and saying, Lord, I hope it's not my time and I hope it's not the pilot's time because I don't want to go with them. We're going. (laughs) Listen, the absolute predetermination of God and human freedom both are true. Gee, and, and, and Peter says, this was God's plan, but you still did it. And then he comes to verse 24. But God, <laughs> notice how many times in scriptures it says, but God. Many times it says, but God, it's important. But God raised him up again, put an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. God raised Jesus back to life. Constantly, constantly, Peter will preach. You crucified him. God raised him up. You killed him. God brought him back to life. He'll stand before the Jewish leaders and says, you killed him. God brought him back to life. He died for us. 
It's the heart of the cross. He died in our place and on our behalf. But God raised him up. God brought him back to life. The one who he did all those miracles through and showed all of that. So that he put an end to the agony of death. In the Greek, it, it, literally it means to birth pains, the pains of birth. You know, birth, you know, I can't speak, for, obviously, for women. I mean, this is one of those times I'm not mansplaining to women how things work. But we know women get birth, it's painful. But eventually the pain ends and the heartbreak begins, right? <laughs> so that's kind of how it works. All the suffering on the cross and what it was about, not the physical suffering, but all the suffering came to an end. Why? Because death could not hold him. It was impossible for death's power to hold the Son of God. The power of God was greater. So this is what Paul's doing and Peter's doing in their context. He's talking about this Jesus who they all knew about, who there's an empty tomb. And in that empty tomb, he is simply saying to them, hey, God raised him back to life. That's what happened. See, the Jewish leaders said the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Peter's one of the disciples saying we didn't steal the body. In fact, the Jewish leaders put a Roman guard consisting of around 12 to 16 people in front of that tomb because they were afraid we were going to steal his body. I mean, that was the story that the apostles stole the body of Jesus. How could we steal the body of Jesus? You think a group of us are going to take on 12 Roman soldiers? And if we did, you think Rome would let us get away with that? You think Rome would let us overpower a group of soldiers and steal the body of Christ and not do anything about it? No, 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 no. You all guys, you all know we didn't steal the body. God raised him from the dead. So here it is. The cross points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the cross is about. We preach the cross because it points to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus. And because that is true, the cross is the way of God saving us. The cross is God's way of saving us from our sin. It's his only way. It's the only way of God to save us. Now, I know it's popular today, especially in 21st century America with all the different things going on, saying, well, there's other ways to come to God and there's other religions and all that. And even within the Christian community, there are some who are talking about other ways to come to God. And, and you know, we have to be open to other religions and we have to be accepting and, and we have to embrace them and all that. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's only one way to come to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the content of the message, which then brings us to the invitation to respond. Peter talks about David. And then verse 36, Peter says this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and God. All of you need to understand this. He's talking to the people of Israel. The context is them. Understand, had this assurance, the word assured means to know, to know perfectly and completely, God made Jesus. God made Jesus. By the way, he reminds him, you crucified, Lord in Christ. He is Lord. The message of the cross is Jesus is Lord. The idea of being Lord means to be God. It is to speak of his deity. To be Christ speaks of his humanity. It is to speak of the fact that he is the Messiah. He's telling the people of Israel, the men, you look for a Messiah. It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God. He is the Lord, your personal God. He will save you. You crucified him. And God raised him from the dead. And then in verse 37, we're told that the people said, what do we do? They were cut to the heart. And Peter said, you repent. And once you repent, you be baptized on the account of your sins being forgiven. This was a radical thing for the Jews. To repent. Yeah, you repent. And then to be baptized. Gentiles were baptized. When John the Baptist did his ministry of baptism, that was a pretty radical thing for them. 
And Peter is saying, you need a fresh start. Now, repentance and faith go hand in hand. They're, they're inseparable. Uh, to repent means you have faith. If you have faith, you always repent. So they're not always, both words aren't always used, but both words are always implied. It, it's the idea simply of this. Once you become a follower of Jesus, you will certainly do so because you repent. And then back then, baptism was how you mark someone as a follower. You'd be baptized, and then you mark yourself as a follower because of your baptism. So here's the thing. What Jesus did and why he did it matters. It always matters. Everything about Jesus matters. His healings mattered. His teachings mattered. They all had a point. They all pointed to the cross. And when you get to the cross, it matters. If everything that Jesus did matters, his death matters. And his resurrection matters. Not only are they historical events, they're everything. Everything about Christianity comes back to the cross. Everything. So, the message, Jesus is Lord, brings an invitation to trust him as Savior. The very fact that the message of the cross is Jesus is Lord means there is an invitation to trust him as Savior. We recognize that and we respond to Christ and salvation. And as a church, we ought to recognize that. So, we talked about where it all began. So let me briefly talk to you about where we are today. Where are we today? Here we are in 21st century America. We're in a culture that is post-Christian. In other words, people just didn't grow up in church anymore. People just don't automatically have a church. And when I grew up, everybody had a church, or if they were Jewish or synagogue, everybody had a church they were connected to. It doesn't work that way anymore. So understand this. We cannot expect people to trust Jesus if we do not tell them the message and the meaning of the cross. We simply cannot expect people just to come to Christ. We cannot just assume that people have a church home. We cannot just assume that they are Christian. They won't come to Jesus unless we tell them, unless we explain to them the message. The message is this. Jesus is Lord. And the meaning is this. He died for our sins. God raised him back to life, and he will save us. This is what we do. Now listen, I, I, I get that everybody has an idea of what the church should be doing. I, I know. And there's a lot of churches that are kind of going down paths that, that I may look at and you may look at and think, well, I don't know why they're going that. They look at us and say, why aren't you doing the things we do? And they say, the church should be doing this and the church should be doing that. And I get all that stuff. Ministry is important. Ministry is important. Ministry is the result of my salvation. I minister to people because I've been saved. And I minister to people because of my love for them and I want to help them and I want to help their situation knowing that that's sometimes the best way that I can open the door to share Jesus is to minister to people. So all that's important. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is in ministry. See, ministries change. They do. The methods we use to reach people, the methods and things we do always change. But what never changes is the Messiah. That never changes. That's Jesus. No one else. In a culture, in a world that thinks there are other ways to God, we need to say, no, there's one Messiah, Jesus. The message never changes. Jesus is Lord. He's not our friend. He's not our teacher. He's not a moral example. He's our Lord. And the mission never changes. It's to get people to Christ. And we will never get people to Christ if we don't share Jesus. So understand this. It is our responsibility. It is not our responsibility to convict or condemn just to communicate. Our responsibility is to communicate Jesus. I grew up when we thought it was our responsibility to condemn people. What you're doing is wrong. You're a sinner. This life is horrible. You're, you're going to rot in hell and all that. And I get it. I'm not saying that's just not true. 
I'm just saying, I grew up, that's what the church did. And the church tried to convict people and make you feel guilty. And all I got to say is, how has that worked out for us? All those churches that are doing that, dying or dead. Maybe we need to let the Holy Spirit do that. It's true, people are condemned. I'm not saying it's not true. And we ought to, occasionally, there will be times when we need to point that out. But most likely, it's not me up here pointing that out. It's probably you, just as you deal with someone, they come to you saying, what do I do? Here's your problem. But ultimately, it's not our job. The Holy Spirit does that. Here's our job. Communicate the scriptures. Teach them about Jesus. That he loves them. That he died for them. He was risen for them. And he will save them. Let Jesus sort out the mess of their life. We wade into the mess. We want to cure the mess and fix the mess before we do anything about it. We wade into the mess. And when we wade into the mess, we don't embrace it, but we engage it. And we share with them Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Who do you know that needs the message of the cross? You all know someone. In fact, they're popping into your name right now, mine right now, right now. You thought of one or two or three or whatever who need the message of Jesus. You can't fix their problems. You can't make it all better. But you can wade into the mess of their life and engage them with the cross. That is what we are called to do as a church. And that is what you are called to do if you follow Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus, that is what Jesus will do for you. He'll wade into your life, and he'll fix all of it up eventually. But first, he wants you to come and trust him. Trust him as your Savior. I get asked, uh, periodically, what's the most important thing I do as a preacher? And it always depends on that particular moment, (laughs) my mood. (laughs) But ultimately, I always answer this way. It's to preach, period. The most important thing any preacher does is preach. Oh, I know pray and read the Bible. I got all the spiritual Jesus Sunday school answers. I got that. The most important thing I do is preach. Because the most important thing I do is to try to reach as many people as I can. But here's the kicker. I don't actually really ever engage that many people. But you do. You embrace in your personal lives family members. You embrace family. You embrace friends. Not their lifestyle, but you know those people. You engage a culture. You're around a culture that you know far more people than I do who need Jesus. It's your responsibility to preach to them well. It's your responsibility to share and proclaim the message and the meaning of the cross. So let me ask you, who was that one that you know? Will you make that commitment today to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a way, Lord. Maybe, maybe the way involves bringing them to church. I got it. I got it. Okay. Maybe you have a hard time speaking. Okay. Somehow you're going to bring them here. Okay. But somehow, some way, you need to make that commitment today that you're going to help that one come to Jesus. And if you're the one who needs to come to Jesus, we invite you to keep your life to Christ and trust him now. In just a moment, I'll be standing here, and so will the other guys will be here as well. If you want to give your life to Christ, come, and we'll talk to you. If you want to join our church, we will. If you want to pray, we'll pray with you about that one person. But leave this place today knowing this. You must share. You must share the cross of Christ. So, Father, we thank you for that message that Jesus is Lord. And that people need it. And the only way, Father, they're going to get that message is if we go share it. So help us share that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us share the rich meaning 
of the death and the resurrection of Christ so that we will see people above all else come to saving faith. For your glory and your honor, we pray. Amen. Would you stand? You come, and I'll be here to greet you.